just in case you were wondering, the dinner table conversation in the yurt this evening consisted of what would happen if we got up and we were just silent and didn't say anything? Or what would happen if we got up here and Robert was really good at this, but he's not here right now, and just made sounds. (laughs) And then we actually had the thought that if we did that, maybe one of you would get enlightened. Uh, So we do think about these things. What happens if the tape doesn't work? So I wanted to talk tonight some more about suffering and the origin of suffering and the end of suffering. A couple of years ago, I was headed out one evening to a meeting that was going to be quite difficult. It was part of an ongoing community discussion that had been long and painful. And I called up Ajahn Amro, whom a number of you know, to talk with him a bit about it and to get some supportive advice. And we chewed it around for a while, and at the end of the conversation, I said, well, do you have any last words of advice, thinking that there might be something I could hold on to? And he said, and he paused for a moment, and then he said, yeah, he said, don't suffer. Well, I thought that was all very well for him to say, but I was the one who was going to the meeting. But actually, it was quite a profound teaching because it really helped me to look at the place where suffering um, was something that I could create more of or I could end. John said, I think in his talk the other night, um, he said, may your past not hold you in captivity. And Rumi says, he says, keep walking, though there's no place to get to. Don't try to see through the distances. That's not for human beings. Move within, but don't move the way fear makes you move. Don't move the way fear makes you move. So in in the interviews, in this last week or so, Certainly in the ones I've had, there have been many stories of suffering and anxiety and the awareness of how we go around and around and around um, with some of these stories. And suffering begets, suffering begets more suffering. The story of your mother or your father or your ex or your boss or your child. One of those stories, we all have at least one. And um, how much of a burden these stories are for us. So tonight I want to tell you some stories about suffering and hopefully some about the end of suffering as well. And take a look at what is, what is this thing that happens. So the first story is a story about my daughter. And my younger daughter was in a relationship for a while with a young man Um, They had moved 
they'd been they'd met in Arizona and they'd moved um, to Texas where he was in graduate school. And you know how relationships are when they start and you're young, they'd fallen in love and there was a lot of nice energy and um, after they'd been together for a while they began to talk about getting married. And um, she found some work in, in Texas near his university. And as their lives began to unfold as the months went by, one of the things that began to happen was he began to manifest a lot of jealousy about her and about her work. And she worked in the court system and sometimes, as you know, trials go on late and she wouldn't get home and he would call and say, where are you? And then 15 minutes later he would call and he would say, where are you? And, and so this, of course, created a certain level of tension and anxiety on her part. And as the dialogue went back and forth, as he, um, his anxiety caused him to worry and to think about all the possible things that could happen, and then she reacted to his anxiety. So that's one story. Another story is about myself. And it's a story um, actually about my marriage. I've been married to a really good man for about 17 years now. And about five or six years ago, um, I fell in love with someone else, as happens sometimes in marriages. And my husband um, is a scientist and a very interesting kind of person, a very spiritual kind of person, although he hasn't owned it very much and he doesn't meditate. And the person that I was interested in was a meditator from another part of the country, far away, so you don't have to look around the room and (laughs) wonder if he's here. He's not here. And because there had been some tension between us around my practice and certainly as I moved into the teaching world the increasing amount of time and energy that both my personal practice and my teaching practice um, took, um, I, I very quickly came to the conclusion, thinking that I was seeing very clearly, that our marriage needed to end. And in a matter of a few months, Um, Even though um, nothing in particular was happening in terms of this other relationship since we weren't geographically close, um, I began to move towards a separation. And we actually had a very brief separation. And then we came back together again. And some months after that, it still began, it still felt as though um, it wasn't going to work. And we began to talk about how we really were going to separate but it was Christmas, and we were both quite sick with colds and the flu. And so we were spent a lot of time sort of shuffling around the house in our bathrobes and sneezing and coughing and not doing very much about it. And then I left to go overseas to teach for several weeks, and we agreed that we would make a decision when I got back. So that's another story, the beginning of another story. One of my favorite Dharma stories is the story of, um, from the time of the life of the Buddha, and it's the story of Angulimala. And Angulimala, when he was young, um, his name was Ahimsa, which means non-harming. 
And he was a very promising spiritual student. And he went to study with the teacher. And because he was had a really open heart and a quite brilliant mind, he made a lot of progress. And pretty soon some of the other students became envious of him. And so after some time they cooked up a plot and they went to the teacher and they said, Ahimsa is sleeping with your wife. And the teacher said, no, you know, he would never do that. He's my best student. And they said, no, 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 he's sleeping with your wife. You watch, you'll see. And he didn't believe them, but they kept saying it. And after a while he started to watch. And after a while he'd heard enough of the story and he began, he thought, to see what they told him was happening. And he became very angry and upset. And so he devised a plot of his own. And he went to Ahimsa and he said, I have a new teaching for you, a new practice. He said, I want you to go out and I want you to kill 1,000 people. Well, this is contrary to all spiritual teachings in any tradition that I can think of anyway. And Ahimsa said, that can't possibly be a practice. You have to be kidding. You know, that's, that's harmful and it's, we, don't, we don't kill. But the teacher said, yes, it's a practice. It's a special kind of practice. And, and <laughs> you have to watch out for teachers sometimes. And, um, and, and actually, that's true. I mean, it's that place, that very difficult place sometimes that happens in teacher-student re- relationships when they're not working so well and teachers get a little addicted to their power. And in this case, um, ultimately, he persuaded Ahimsa that this indeed was a practice. And so Ahimsa left and went in search of his first victim. And the last thread, the last story thread that I want to tell you is about a man whose name was Frank Parker. And when I heard of Frank Parker, he was on death row in the state of Arkansas. And he'd had an extremely violent and angry life. And he was there because he'd killed the parents of his former wife. And he'd been tried and sentenced to death and was in prison going through the long appeal process. And when he was first there, was still an extremely angry man, very violent, um, ended up in isolation in the hole a lot. The Buddha taught frequently on the nature and the origin and the development and the end of suffering. And he wanted, over and over again, he said he wanted all beings to be happy. He wanted all beings to learn to live with serenity and with equanimity, with the openness of heart that we've been talking about, with the ability to be present in the moment and without suffering. When I talked a week or so ago, whenever that was, ten years ago, um, we talked a little bit about the Four Noble Truths, which really is the core of the Buddhist teaching. And that teaching in which he talked about the existence of suffering and that we need to comprehend the nature of suffering. And he said there's ordinary suffering that comes with 
having a body and being incarnate in time and space, so sickness and old age and um, that kind of thing, the suffering, suffering, dukkha, dukkha, is sometimes called. But there's another kind of suffering that um, is a, a little trickier, and that's that place of, of the inherent unsatisfactoriness of things, that nothing lasts, it's everything is impermanent, and there's nothing that you can find that is inherently satisfactory in this world of time and space. You can't find it. And we keep wanting it to happen. We keep getting attached to this or that. And, you know, if only I do this, then I will be happy. If only it won't rain. If only my cushion were another inch higher. If only, you know. And so this place of wanting it to be different from what it is causes so much suffering. That place of attachment and addiction and um, just grasping and craving for something other than what is in the present moment. And so he said, we have to let go of that. And he said, then we need to see that it's possible not to get caught. And then he taught the Eightfold Path, the path of wise understanding and wise attitude, living our life wisely, the three steps about living carefully and in a non-harming way, and the three steps about training the mind. He also taught many teachings about karma. And he said, in any given moment, we're living out the consequences of previous actions. It's not only your own previous actions, but it's the previous actions of your family, and your friends, and your country, and your culture, and he said, in fact, um, this, this karma thing is so big and so vast that it's unthinkable. And if you want to try, you could think about the karma that brought us all here into this room at this very moment. And pretty, it very quickly gets huge. It's every individual's karma. It's the karma of the bell, who made the bell and where it came from, and therefore probably I think the karma of Japan, the karma of the wood that goes into the place, the people who built the building, all of the people who went into Spirit Rock and built this, the Nature Conservancy who owned it before we did, the Indians who were here before that, and pretty soon it's huge, right? You can't possibly think at all. It's just vast, this thing of karma. But it's a very important thing to understand because what, what, what we can do something about is the understanding that karma has to do with actions and consequences. It's a bit, I like the word reverberation, you know? And so long after I hit the bell, there's a reverberation to the action of hitting the bell. Long after other kinds of actions There's a reverberation that goes on in my life and the lives of other beings. When we come into a moment of perception, of seeing something, of interacting with the world around us, our mind is colored by our past experiences, the memory of them, the influence of them, the feelings we have around them. 
Now, sometimes this is useful, clearly. You see a car coming towards you, you're in the middle of the road, you remember the car is bigger and heavier than you are, it's a good idea to get out of the way, you get out of the way, it's great. So it's not that this is inherently something that's wrong or bad or any of that. It's just useful to know that because sometimes, of course, what happens is our perception and seeing is influenced by the memories, our history, the suffering we've been through, and we, we continue the cycle of suffering. For example, think how hard it is sometimes to be really fresh in a relationship. You know, think of perhaps your partner or your child, and they have said, I'll be home for dinner at six o'clock. And so you say, great, I'll have dinner ready at six o'clock. So you do dinner, and um, six o'clock comes and goes, and they're not there. And you go, oh, hmm, they're not there. And then maybe 6.30 comes. And maybe you haven't had such a good day anyway, so you're possibly a bit grumpy, and you start getting a little worried. And by 7 o'clock, you're even more worried. And 8 o'clock, you've had them, you've had all kinds of stories. They've been dead on the freeway, they've run away, they don't love you. you. You know what goes on in your mind. And then they walk in the door. I don't know about you, but I don't see clearly in moments like that. And that place of not seeing clearly in moments like that is actually a kind of ignorance. We we can't see clearly sometimes in moments like that. It's like the lens of memory and history is over our eyes, and you're seeing through that lens. You're not seeing clearly. And so because of that, that lens, because of that not seeing clearly, a kind of consciousness arises. Sometimes it's difficult. You're defensive or you're angry or you're filled with desire or whatever it is that, that all of your history and your memory causes in that moment. There's an interesting little catch that was particularly true, I think, in my story, which is sometimes we think we see clearly in those moments. We think we're clear. You know, we don't, we don't see the lens. It's not obvious to us. One of my teachers, Joseph Goldstein, said something once at a retreat I was at with him that has just stayed with me because it's been such a profound teaching. He said, notice how we build houses of thought and then we inhabit them. We live in the house of the story that we create in our hearts and mind. We come to a particular experience from inside that house, and we look out through the windows of that house. So we come to a moment completely conditioned by all of the previous moments. The moment itself is conditioned, our our mind and heart is conditioned. And at that point, we we connect with the world around us. An event happens, 
We name it, there's seeing, hearing, tasting, touching. We make contact. All of this happens very, very fast, just like that. And frequently, we react. And we react seeing through the windows of that house. And so the reaction is frequently from the story that we're inhabiting. I really like this. I really hate that. It's great. It's awful. I want him or I want her or I don't want him or her. How do I get rid of it? Whatever it is that comes up. So if you think back to the example of your partner, your child, whoever it was that came home at 8 o'clock in the evening after saying that it would be 6, or maybe it's 9 o'clock by the time they get home, or 10 o'clock even. When they walk in the door, do you react with or without the story? Chances are really, really good that you react out of the story. They walk in the door, you're terrified because you know they've been dead on the freeway or you know they don't love you and whatever comes out of your mouth is usually not so very skillful. (laughs) This place in the teachings of the Buddha is really important because it's the place where we can continue the cycle of suffering or we can end it. It's the place of the mindfulness of the feeling tone of a moment, of its pleasantness or its unpleasantness or its neutrality. The feeling tone is called Vedana in Pali. And if you don't catch it, if you don't catch that pleasantness that you want more of or the unpleasantness that you don't want, um, you continue the story. You keep it going is what happens. So we get caught in the story. The story becomes a lens. And then our behaviors can be quite unskillful out of that moment. We see what we want to see. We see conditioned by our story. We see conditioned by years of abuse or having been abandoned many times over or really see yearning for a partner or whatever it is that your story is that you're carrying around in that particular moment. We don't see what is there. We see through the lens of the story. And out of that seeing through the lens of the story, um, great hurt and pain can arise. It can be enormous suffering of the worst sort, you know. It can, it's not the ordinary suffering. It's not sickness and, and those kinds of things that are somehow kind of workable. But it's, it's the suffering that happens when we try to make reality fit the way we want it to be and not the way that it is. You know, remember that passage from the Dhammapada that James read, I think, just last night, where he said, you know, that um, has that lovely line at the end of it. And it says uh, about your mind that once mastered, no one can help you as much, not even your father or mother. What he didn't read you 
was the line that's just before that, which says, your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own thoughts unguarded. So this is that place where what's happening in the mind can create an enormous amount of woundedness and pain. Now, you can't change your past. You can't change the years of abandonment, the abuse, the unhappy marriage, the difficult job, whatever it is that brought you to that particular moment in time. We also said last night, I believe that all beings are inheritors of their own karma. So the reverberation of your own life, your parents' lives, your culture's lives, your country's lives, is there. It exists in your own life. You will come to an experience and the reverberation of all of those stories will be there. And you will experience it any given moment as pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. And you will, that will happen. And it's possible that some desire or some aversion or some delusion will arise. What creates the problem is not recognizing that, is not catching that very moment, not seeing the quality, the pleasantness of it or the unpleasantness of it, not seeing that it's possible that there's a lens there, that you're experiencing the moment through the lens, through the window of your old story. And so you get involved in more desire, more aversion, more delusion, act out of being caught in that place, and the story continues. You write the sequel or the next episode, and it goes on, and then more unskillful actions have a chance to arise. So, for example, with my daughter, um, this went on for some months, and it just intensified, and he became more and more frightened, and out of his fear, had all kinds of stories about what she was doing. She was going to work and coming home, and and just but had to work late. And as he saw what he thought he saw, and of course, as she, I'm sure, quite unskillfully reacted to his pain and anger, the whole thing escalated, and in the end, their relationship ended. They've both gone on to other things. This was a couple of years ago. And um, so it's in some ways not a sad story, but it is a sad story because um, it was one of those relationships that had a lot of hope. But they didn't see clearly. He saw what he thought he saw. He didn't catch it that perhaps there was something of his own story that he was seeing in the moment. We all do this. The story piles up. Even We create even worse stories, more moments of misperception, and more moments of ignorance. Angulimala killed his first person, and then a second, and then a third. And Frank Parker 
there on death row in Arkansas continued to be angry and violent and end up in isolation, one moment of anger leading to another moment of anger and violence. So things inherently difficult become worse when we don't see clearly and wisely. Fortunately, there's another alternative, which is that it's possible to interrupt the cycle. We can catch that place of reaction. So this is where sitting here is really important. You can notice, it's an entire foundation of mindfulness, this foundation of vedna, of feelings. You can notice when your experience is pleasant. Be a great thing. We'll probably talk about it in the instructions tomorrow. And you can just notice periodically, oh look, this is pleasant. Sometimes we don't, we don't catch it, right? Or you can notice, oh, this is really unpleasant. Or once in a while you might have something where it, it's just neutral. The catch with things that are neutral is we tend to space out and get bored or a bit deluded because we're not paying so much attention. They don't tug at us. So it's really important to develop some habit of noticing the pleasantness and the unpleasantness, the place of reaction. We can notice when desire and aversion arises in the mind. Pema Chudran has a great practice that she teaches. She has the practice, which she also does herself, of noticing what is going on in the heart and the mind as someone comes toward her. So some person you've never met before, you're walking down to the dining hall and somebody's walking up the sidewalk, and, you know, sometimes like that, a whole story. Have you noticed? I used to notice that on retreats. You know, a new person would walk into the hall. Oh, my goodness, the most exciting thing that had happened in weeks. And before they even settled down on their cushion, I would have a whole novel about who they were, why they were here, how long they were going to be here, whether I liked them or not, what kind of a yogi they were, etc., etc., etc. It's so fast in the mind, those stories. And so to just begin to notice that place when you meet people, especially people you don't know. In my situation, this ongoing struggle with to stay married, not to stay married, what about this other person? Um, I can say a couple of things about it. One is that I was, in the end, deeply grateful for the precepts because it kept me from doing anything that would have created a lot of suffering in terms of actual actions. Um, One is that I happened to have an interview with a Tibetan Lama that I had attended some teachings with a few times. And so I went, I went to him and told him the problem. And he looked at me with great compassion, actually. And he was talking about Russell, my husband, and he said, you must not harm this man. And I thought, oh, I don't want to hear that. But, you know, those things have a way of reverberating in the heart and mind, even when you don't want to hear them. Another friend talked with me at some length while I was um, on this teaching trip overseas 
about the importance of solid and stable marriages and relationships for society, which made me just have some sense that maybe the res- my responsibility about this situation wasn't just a personal piece. So I began to realize kind of slowly that even though I thought I was seeing clearly, and even though I was doing such a good job of thinking I was seeing clearly that I managed to convince most of the people around me that I was seeing clearly, I wasn't seeing clearly. And there came a totally amazing moment the day that I came back from this trip and we'd driven down from the airport through a horrible storm, quite like what we had this weekend. And he was resting on the couch in front of the fireplace. And I walked down the stairs and I looked at him and it's like the whole story dropped away. Just gone. And in that moment I knew I would never leave this man. And, it, you know, we had a lot of work to do after that. And we've done a lot of work. We have, we have somebody who most people would call their therapist. We call him our coach. And um, he's coached us through several years now of, of really working on it. And things slowly, slowly have changed. And there's this great goodness in, in that situation. But I wasn't seeing clearly. I was reacting to him out of the story. So Angulimala. Angulimala became a very feared bandit. He killed many, many people. And it got to be so that if it was known that he was in a particular area and near a particular village, everybody would stay inside because they knew that he was this horrible serial killer. And so he killed and he killed and you can imagine that the practice of the practice, the habit of killing the one after another, it ate away at him inside and completely changed the the reverberation that was going on in him. But as these things happen, he got to nine hundred and ninety-nine. And he happened to be in the area where the Buddha was. And the Buddha's friends all said, don't, don't go out. That would be really dangerous. What if Angulimala got you? You know, so be careful. You shouldn't go out. Stay inside. Forget about your alms round, you know, all of that. Angulimala was having trouble finding people at that point because everybody (laughs) stayed hidden. And he'd finally thought, and this is not a good thought under the best of circumstances. And in Asia, it's considered to be even more reprehensible. He thought, I will go home and get mom. So he started out to kill his mother. That would be number 1,000. The Buddha, being perhaps somewhat able to see into what was going on and also being really confident of his own safety, his own well-being, kind of like inhabiting, what was, the, what was the word for the heart you used, Sylvia? Benevolent. He has inhabiting his benevolent heart. So he went out on his arms round anyway. So the Buddha is walking serenely through the woods, and along comes Angulimala. Good, he says. I won't have to get mom 
After all, I'll get that old guy. So he starts running after the Buddha. And the Buddha's just walking peacefully along, carrying his alms bowl. And Angulimala is running and running and running and running and running, and he can't catch the Buddha. And so finally he calls out, and he says, Stop, old man, stop. And the Buddha stops, and he turns, and he looks at Angulimala, and he says, I stopped a long time ago. When are you going to stop? And in that moment, something shifted for Angulimala, and he saw in a very different way from the way he'd been seeing for many years, and he stepped out of that story, out of the story of killing people, and became a monk almost immediately, much to the distress of some of the other monks and the people around, but nonetheless. (laughs) There's a little more to his story, but I'll tell you that in a few minutes. So the last piece about Frank Parker. Frank Parker ended up in the hole one day. And when you're thrown into isolation or put into isolation, not supposed to be thrown, but you are allowed to have a spiritual book in with you, a text. And usually, of course, in the South, it's the Bible and in Christian parts of the world. And so he was yelling, I want my Bible, I want my Bible. And the guard was really annoyed at him. So he grabbed another book off the shelf of spiritual books and threw it in the door and slammed the door and locked it. It turned out that the other book was the Dhammapada. And Frank Parker had never come across anything like this before. And because there wasn't anything else to do in isolation, at some point he sat down and he began to read. And something shifted for him. And he read some more and he read some more. And when he got out of isolation, he asked for some books, and he got some books, and he began to practice. And he began to change. And so he stepped out of that story of violence and anger, that habit, that particular reverberation. And he found a teacher. He got himself in touch with a teacher. There there are Buddhists in Arkansas. You might not believe it, but it's true. They're there. And there was actually a sangha of people who visited him regularly. One of his teachers was actually a Tibetan lama who lives not so far from where I am, down in Santa Cruz, Lama Tarchin. And he actually learned about kindness. And he really changed his life so that um, the other people in the prison, the wardens and the guards actually began to value his presence there. And he was helpful with the other prisoners. And so he practiced and, and did his best to be kind and non-harming in that very difficult prison situation. And any of you who have done any prison work know how hard it is. And continued to go through the appeal process, but also knew and understood in a very deep way that what was happening was the karma for all of those acts of violence 
that he had done earlier in his life, and that the karma might be such that he would, in fact, end up dying. And the people around him did their best. They um, wrote letters, even the Dalai Lama wrote letters, asking for clemency for this man. In the end, he actually stopped all the appeals. I read about him in the um, Buddhist Peace Fellowship magazine one morning. And um, it was before he was executed. And um, I was quite interested in this man who seemed to have really changed things. And that evening, my community in Santa Cruz was sitting. And we sat down, and I sat up front like we are here. And we all started to sit. It got quite quiet. And the door in the back opened and closed, as happens, people come in late. And I could hear the person coming in, except they came all the way in and they came all the way up to the front. That doesn't usually happen. And so I opened my eyes and here was a woman that I knew. And she said, they're going to execute one of Lama Tarchin's students while we are sitting here this evening in Arkansas. So I knew who it was. I think she even said his name. And so, you know, we certainly, I decided to interrupt the sitting and I said what was happening. So here's a description of what happened. Frankie died with great equanimity and lived a teaching for all who are facing death. He spent his last day saying goodbye to friends and family, receiving calls from his teachers and writing a final statement of a wish for compassion for our world. Then, when they came for him, he began to chant his refuge vows, the same vows that we chant here, bowed, even though shackled completely to his altar, walked serenely to the door, bowed three times to his teacher, and entered the death chamber. There he peacefully lay on the gurney, and the director of the Department of Corrections held a picture of the Buddha, and he said his last words, the refuge vows. Then, with the Buddha as his last thing to see, he shut his eyes. Three minutes after the injection, he died. In a letter to his teacher, he once wrote, Death is not the end. Everything we do or say, or is said and done to us is karma. What I have coming in May, which was the original execution date, is simply a result of what I have done. I would like to say to all the people incarcerated in this country, seek enlightenment. Seek. In seeking, you will find the Buddha residing in your own heart. So Frankie also stopped and stepped out of his story. And even reading that really difficult account of his execution, there's some sense that despite the violence of the system and the anger of the system, there's a sense of dignity and peace that the system couldn't destroy. And that in practicing, in stepping out of that story and then continuing this 
very different way of being, he was able to practice right into the moment of his death and to become a teacher for many people, including us. After Angulimala stopped, he also helped, and he became a, a monk. Sometimes the reverberation from those years of anger and violence came back and visited him, and he was stoned, and people in villages would hate to see him because he had harmed people that they loved. And so they would throw stones and yell and scream at him, and the Buddha would say, you know, be patient, Angulimala, it's your karma. And... Um, and in the end, it's said that he died peacefully and fully enlightened. It's also said that he began to be, before he died, a great help to women who were having difficult childbirth. I don't quite get how that works, but I like it very much. That <laughs> there was a way in which he, he really was able to serve those in difficulty and those, you know, those babies who were kind of stuck on their way out. We don't need to continue whatever cycle we're in. We can learn to be present. You are learning to be present here, moment by moment by moment. Pleasant moments unpleasant moments, occasional neutral moments, one moment after another. The great blessing of being here on the cushion is you don't get to jump up and do some action right away. So you get to sit and see, oh look, here's this pleasantness, and then see the desire arise, and see the wanting, and see the leaning into the action, and see the plans for how you're going to get what it is or who it is that you want. We've had a few stories like that, I think, probably. Or you've had the other kind of stories, the stories of unpleasant moments and how you hate it that the person next to you does this or that or the other thing, and you plan your revenge in great detail, and, and you see what goes on when there's an unpleasant moment and the mind reacts to it. It's a wonderful teaching to have that here. Because learning to see those moments is then finding that place where we can interrupt the cycle and we can act out of a place that is wiser and kinder and more compassionate and in which we see clearly. When we do that, when we wait, when we understand that there's a place that we can cut into the cycle. That's the place where we can find a moment of freedom. That's where we are not imprisoned by our past. And when we are not imprisoned by our past, then we can indeed step forward into a moment of freedom. One last reading from the Dhammapada. The wise person following the way crosses over beyond the reach of death, free from desire, free from possessions, free from attachment, following the seven lights of awakening 
and rejoicing greatly in one's freedom. In this world, the wise person becomes oneself a light, pure, shining, and free. So let's sit and breathe together for a moment. So thank you very much for your presence and for your practice.